Education Foundation's Get to College program. Based in South Haven, Jackson, and Ocean Springs, Get to College advisors help students and families plan and pay for college. Learn more at woodwardhines.org. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, February 8th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Mississippi could once again have the most restrictive abortion regulations in the country. Hear the personal abortion story of one woman who says a proposed law is a bad idea. People make mistakes. People make bad choices, just like I did. But if you're not well enough, and if, if you don't plain out want to, and it's your choice... I think just leave it alone. It's not not your area. And honestly, I just need people to mind their business. Then experts urge Mississippi parents to be on the lookout for signs of teen dating violence. Plus, could Mississippi folklorist Bill Ferris take home a Grammy Award this weekend? We'll hear from him. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Proposals in front of Mississippi lawmakers would make abortion illegal in the state after the detection of a fetal heartbeat. That's as early as six weeks of pregnancy. House Bill 732 and Senate Bill 2116 both survived a key legislative deadline last week. If either passes, it would once again mean Mississippi would have the most restrictive abortion laws in the country. Mississippi last year enacted a law banning abortion after 15 weeks. A federal judge declared Declared it unconstitutional. Republican Senator Angela Hill of Picayune is the sponsor of SB 2116. That's the Senate version of the heartbeat bill. She lays out her argument to MPB's Ashley Norwood. Later and later abortions really should not be taking place because truly women have options um, early in the pregnancy and they have um, technology to detect that um, that was not there many, many years ago. So I think the fact that when you know that there's a heart beating, um, we know that there is a live person when a heart's beating, um, and the fact that when a, a coroner pronounces death and puts a death certificate out there, it's based on a heart not beating. So I think that technology... Um, Our practices um, are just so far behind technology with later abortions that that this would be safer for women, um, and it also would be better emotionally also because I think I've had women write me letters who have had abortions after that they've, you know, seen a heartbeat and and, and they think it's the right thing to do at that time and then later on, you know, they, they feel the emotional scars from it. And I think the fact that we already have to provide an ultrasound um, that's already in law, they already have to look for a heartbeat. So that's nothing new. It just basically says that if you want to terminate a pregnancy, that you can't do it unless it's a medical emergency after detectable heartbeat. Now we have um, pregnancy tests that will detect a pregnancy nine days after fertilization. We have Plan B. Um, technology has come so far with available options for women early um, that our, our laws and courts just haven't kept up with the advancements in technology to stop those later and later term abortions. Different states getting involved in the heartbeat bill trying to pass this legislation is a part of a larger agenda to overturn Roe versus Wade. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think... In in my mind is, I just feel like I come from a science background, and I feel like that as technology has advanced and we have more capabilities of looking into the womb and seeing the babies, seeing them moving, seeing them form, seeing the heart beating, that it's better for the babies to be able to live, and it's better for women to 
not terminate that baby after they see a viable heartbeat, they see a baby moving on an ultrasound, they know it's real. Um, And like I said, there's options that we did not have. We can go to Walmart and buy Plan B as emergency contraception. we got pregnancy tests that you can go buy off the shelf that can detect a pregnancy nine days after fertilization. So it's not ending all options for women. It's just basically saying that after that heart's beating, after that woman sees that baby moving on an ultrasound, that we should protect that baby and that mother from the potential scars that she would have. Republican Senator Angela Hill of Picayune, a Jackson woman we're calling Marie, says she hopes lawmakers do not pass the heartbeat bill. Marie had two abortions as a teenager, now 21 and at the beginning of a career as a nurse's nurse's assistant. She says women in difficult situations deserve legal abortion to remain a health care option. Women should have their own right to choose and they should have the right health care because abortion is health care to have an abortion, if they go along with this six-week ban, a lot of people, it's going to put a lot of people in jeopardy because a lot of people go through risk just to be pregnant. People don't have the financial, people are not financially stable to be pregnant. So I stand on to having the right to be having an abortion. So, yeah, I'm on the side of right choice. Talk about, you know, your own personal story. Because I've been there. I personally been there. Um, I found out I was pregnant at seven weeks when I was 15. And just say, let's say they did go along with the law. And I was, and it was, it was a six week bed, and I was just seven weeks. And I was forced to, basically, they tell you, you were forced to have a child. And I was not financially, I didn't even have a job. Being in that, being in that shoes and being in that predicament, it, it's really hard because I could, I could tell a lot. Of, I, I talked to a lot of people that been through um, rape trauma. I talked to a lot of people that's been through abuse relationship, and if it's going through that, you making it seem like women that can't think for themselves. So with that, uh, just looking back at that time, you were fifteen. You know, you got some people that say, well, she should have wore a condom. I want to say people make mistakes. Now, I'm not saying children are a mistake. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying people make mistakes. People make bad choices, just like I did. But if you're not well enough, and if, if you don't plain out want to, and it's your choice, I think just leave it alone. It's not your pot. It's not... No, not your area. And honestly, I just need people to mind their business. Did you consider any other options besides the abortion? I was, because um, other than abortion, I was considering adoption. But honestly, I was not well enough to hold a child at 15. I was itty-bitty. I mean, itty-bitty. <laughs> and I just couldn't go through them nine weeks like that. And I don't think it would be healthy for me to do that either. So I had to make a big choice for myself. It's not like, hey, I woke up and said, hey, I wanted to have an abortion today. It really takes deep thought for that kind of decision. Did you find yourself in that situation again in life since 15? I did. And it was a hard, harder decision to make because I was farther along. It, it did take a lot of thought. And this, I almost went through with it, but my doctor told me no. 
what's been the most difficult part of those decisions? Like, do you have any regrets? It's not regret. You have your moments where you sit down and think of what, what could have been. But then you think about it again and say, hey, I did do the right thing. Where would I be if I have a child? Now, you could say, you can do it as a bad thing, you could do it as a good thing. Where you think about, well, I made it this far in life if I had a child. Now you could think about, now if I had a little one running around, would it be better for me? But either way, I think I did. I personally made a good decision. And people that think they down themselves, I think they did a good decision. If you think you did a good decision, you did it for yourself, not for others, for yourself. Marie shared her story with MPB's Ashley Norwood. A bill that passed the Mississippi Senate makes it harder for people to sue businesses when a violent crime is committed on their property, MPB's Desiree Frazier reports. The Landowners Protection Act says businesses that take steps to make their property safe would not be 100% liable if a serious criminal act is committed on their property. Republican Senator Josh Harkins of Flowood says right now, when a criminal commits a serious crime, the victim can hold the owner completely liable for the offense. What I'm trying to do is provide some protection for property owners when they should not be held accountable for the acts of another individual that they didn't know, they didn't invite on their property, and they had no idea they were going to commit whatever crime they committed. Harkins says even if a property owner doesn't take steps to keep his business safe, his liability wouldn't be 100 percent the criminal would face the bulk of the liability. Democratic Senator Derek Simmons of Greenville says, right now, businesses that make every effort to keep their property safe are seldom held liable. He wants language removed that would only make businesses liable if they're somehow involved in the crime. The bill would also require the criminal be convicted of a felony within three years before an owner could be sued. What this does is it basically raises the bar. It shifts the burden from the plaintiff over to a requirement where it grants immunity to the business owner. There is no way you can recover based upon the language in this bill. Simmons contends there would be no incentive for businesses, especially those in higher crime areas, to keep their property safe. The bill passed with a motion that it can be brought up again in the Senate before it goes to the House. Desiree Frazier, MPB News. For more in-depth coverage of the 2019 legislative session, tune in to At Issue tonight at 7.30 on MPB TV. Coming up, experts urge Mississippi parents to be on the lookout for signs of teen dating violence. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Last time on the Gestalt Gardener. Come in here and talk to him, Billy. Wait, wait. What are we doing? Is this pastel around the room day? That going for is more of a potted plant hanging basket, hanging off the side of type of thing, rather than planting in a hole type of thing. And in the hole itself, put you some ivy or some impatience, something else. But I wouldn't plant the, the saccharine fern in a hole. That sounds good. I'm going to hand you back over to stand. No, no, no. We're going to move on to the next couple. Tune in to the Gestalt Gardener today, 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. In the United States, one in three teens will experience dating violence. That's according to the organization Love is Respect. But it doesn't always take the form of the physical violence you might expect. Tanya Smith is the mother of a teenager and works for the Mississippi-based nonprofit Canopy Children's Solutions. She says forms of dating violence can be physical, verbal, emotional, and sexual, as she tells MPB's Jasmine Ellis. Dating violence could be like two people in a relationship, but it could be physical, 
physical, it could be um, verbal, it could be emotional, but it occurs when you're in a relationship and negative effects start happening. It's not the normal relationship that we want people to have, but it, it happens. It, it, can, it can happen in different ways, and a lot of people just think it's just physical, but it's not. It could, it could be emotional, it could be the way the person treats you, or um, it could even be sexual. So, you know, all of those can be forms when it comes to dating violence. What are some red flags associated with dating violence? For instance, not letting you hang out with, the, with your friends. Uh, it could be texting too much or calling me too much or just trying to change everything about me. I have a 15-year-old daughter myself, so I always kind of take this a little personal because I know she's in that age and she's starting to date and she's starting to talk to people. But it could just kind of be just changing that lifestyle, um, just trying to get you all to, 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 that person trying to get you to themselves. Sometimes it could just be just telling you what to wear or the, the things that you can do, you know, taking taking away from, I have seen some girls sometimes, they're in activities and the boys, the boys are like, well, I don't want you wearing that chili the skirt or I don't want you wearing your hair like that or I don't want you wearing makeup it's just kind of changing everything about you who does dating violence specifically affect I know you mentioned it's not always just girls sometimes it's also boys can you speak a little bit to that girls I would say girls and women between the age of 16 to 24 that's kind of like the target with the highest rate um just some little stats one in three teens can experience it and I always look at one in five of our high school girls can be physical sexual but I always look at it with boys as well I think that's a number that we don't really talk about <laughs> because boys don't really want to share that. You know, they don't want to talk about the girls, you know, having them to be in relationships and they don't really want to be in relationships. They don't really talk about that. I don't see it as much in my young boys, and I think because they don't really want to share it, but it happens every single day. Say someone is experiencing dating violence and wants to get help, but they're scared of getting help or they might hear what you just said oh earth might think what you just said oh the person you know loves me how can they go about receiving that help you also have hotlines like the um, mississippi domestic abuse hotline um they have websites like loveisrespect.org i always tell people to kind of look online you know sometimes those are easy ways can be children solutions we're here and um we also can provide services even if we cannot do something we can also refer you out to where you could get help how can you help somebody in that situation as well so say you see somebody who you love and you know um and you see something might be a little off with their relationship and you want to get them help and maybe you're scared at how they'll react towards you or might isolate them. How can you get somebody who's experiencing dating violence help? I will always say encourage them. Um, meet them where they are at that point. Um, continue to just kind of coach them through and kind of talk to them doing that. Um, I think sometimes that we think that we can just take the person and just say, hey, you got to leave. And, you know, sometimes the the person can run away from that because they think that, you know, we're trying to tell them something that they don't want to hear. But just kind of be supportive. Um, You know, use kind of subtle things. Because, hey, girl, I got a website, you know, that I was reading about earlier today. You know, showing how how I saw this today online or even watching a movie. Sometimes even with Lifetime or different real-life movies kind of come on, sometimes when they see that and they kind of see themselves, that may kind of trigger them to kind of say, okay, I might want to get help. But just being there supportive for them, um, support them through it, and just make sure that any kind of avenues that you can give them to kind of lead them, you know, way to kind of stop. Where do abusers learn their behavior? And do abusers even recognize that they're they're being abusive? You know, I always say it's two sides of the coin. We always think about the person that's being abused. But a lot of times, hurt people hurt people. And I always say that, you know, um, 
it, it's it could be the upbringing. It could be you know they could have been abused. They could have been experiencing, and sometimes they think those are normal relationships. Um, so I always say it's two sides of the coins, and so we have to look at their side as well. Um, they could get the behavior from anywhere, and a lot of it comes from the upbringing. They have, didn't have those healthy relationships growing up, and that's why we really have to target that and just kind of encourage healthy relationships and just let them know what's okay and not okay, and then kind of teach them from there. What if you have a child who maybe you don't have a relationship where, you know, they're a teenager, they might not want to speak with you, or might they might be afraid to speak with you, or they just say, I'm fine, but you notice something is not okay. What are some things parents can do to help their help their children in that case if they can't get their child to open up? Um, I think overall, as parents, we just should be good role models. Um, um, I always just say model what we want our children to see. Just be there for them, support them in every way. Um, just kind of encouraging. My daughter is very shy too, and so it's kind of hard sometimes to open, you know, for her to open up. But she has now. But just kind of being there and just letting them know that you're there, that they could talk to you about anything. Um, you know, and just kind of sharing, you know, part of you. Because a lot of times we don't want to talk and we don't want to, we don't even want to talk about it. We don't even want to think that dating violence is something real for teens. And it is. Um, so just kind of keeping a line of communications. I mean, and everything doesn't have to be, it could be situations like you're having a movie night and you're sitting at home with your popcorn and you just open up the line of communication and have a conversation about, okay, let's talk about, you know, boys. Or, you know, what do you think is right? Or what do you think is right? I try to get their opinion because a lot of times I think that teens think we dismiss what they have, you know, what they want to say or what they want to do. And sometimes it's not that they're just really shy. They just don't know how to share it. And we haven't really had opened it up for them to want to share it with us. Tanja Smith with Canopy Children's Solutions. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate you. Coming up, Mississippi folklorist Bill Ferris could take home a Grammy Award this weekend. We'll hear from him next. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. For moments in black history, we salute Judge Reuben Anderson. Born in Jackson, Mississippi to a father who was a bricklayer, Anderson graduated from Tougaloo College in 1965. He then entered the University of Mississippi School of Law as the second black student to be admitted, and on January 16, 1985, he was sworn in as the first African-American Supreme Court Justice in the state of Mississippi, a position he held until his retirement from the bench in 1991. This has been MPB Moments in Black History. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Bill Ferris is a folklorist who has helped preserve the history of the American South. Notably, he is the founding director of the Center for the Study of Southern Culture at the University of Mississippi. A collection of his films and recordings is nominated for a Grammy Award in the Best Historical Album category. The collection is called Voices of Mississippi, Artists and Musicians, documented by William Ferris. Bill Ferris sat down with the Mississippi Arts Commission's Larry Morrissey for this week's episode of the Mississippi Arts Hour. They talk about the nomination and why and about why the preservation of folklore is so important. All of us in many ways keep coming back home in what we do to our roots and Mississippi gives you especially deep roots. I grew up on a farm. My family were the only white family there. There were a number of black families and That was an isolated rural world 16 miles southeast of Vicksburg in Warren County. And as a child, at the age of four or five, a lady named Mary Gordon would take me to Rose Hill Church on the first Sunday of each month. 
and I learned the hymns that were part of the service. And as I grew older, I realized that there were no hymnals in that church. It was all sung from memory. And I began to think about what would happen to the music once the families were no longer there. And so I began to record the services to photograph and later film them as a way of preserving for future generations the music that I loved as part of that ceremony. And that led to a career in folklore where I really drove up and down Highway 61 and tried to document and preserve the voices of Mississippi. Your earliest documentation obviously happens within your community and kind of stretching out into kind of southwest Mississippi. But the work that became your dissertation, you kind of move up into the Delta. Why did you make that that journey to the Delta? Well, I think it was both the power of the blues, of Delta blues, and also the politics of the time. I was a involved with civil rights protests and trying to build bridges in the segregated South. And to me, it was a political act to record black musicians and storytellers who would otherwise be forgotten, left out of history, to provide a voice to the voiceless. And often when I was recording Musicians and storytellers would say to me, now, if I tell you this, do you promise to put it out and let people know what it was like to be down here in Mississippi? And I said, I will. I'm going to put a book together and you will be in it. And that's what my life has been. The the book, Give My Poor Heart Ease, basically are stories about the musicians' lives in their voice. And I've tried to give that voice, to get out of the way and just let people tell their own story. Grammy nominations just came out as we're recording in the last week or two, and yes. uh, the box set has got two nominations. That's right. It's nominated for the Best Historic Album and also for the Best Liner Notes in the uh, blues area that's and the gospel area. The two essays by my friend David Evans have been nominated for a Grammy. And you've had many uh, awards and, and things, but I would assume, this, is this your first Grammy nomination? Yes, it is. Right. I'm in over my head. Uh, I always looked at these as things that the Beatles were associated with and the Rolling Stones, but this reflects the broadening of their recognition of all kinds of music, from roots music or folk music to the pop stars like Taylor Swift. The Grammy Awards are this Sunday on CBS. There is much more of Larry Morrissey's conversation with Bill Ferris. You can hear it on Sunday evening at 5 on MPB Think Radio. In closing our show today, a selection from Ferris's Grammy-nominated Voices of Mississippi. It's James Sunford Thomas with 44 Blues. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's the Gestalt Gardener. Then at 10, it's Next Stop Mississippi. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy for Women. 
Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online by visiting mpbonline.org. You can also download the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play stores, or you can subscribe to Mississippi Edition in your favorite podcasting app. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again Monday morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. I woke up this morning with my 44 in my hand. I was thinking about my baby. She's gone out with another man. All right. Support for MPB comes from the Woodward Hines Education Foundation, committed to helping more Mississippians obtain post-secondary credentials, college certificates, and degrees that lead to employment.